So I want to um, explore how to bring the retreat out of the retreat area into our lives, into the world. Or actually how to continue wherever we are. And part of it is to just get more and more familiar with cycles. It's wonderful that Heather gave a whole talk to the theme of cycles because we know that with uh, beginnings there are endings. With night there is day. With the in-breath there is an out-breath. And as it were, our retreat is had a very long (laughs) in-breath. And now the the out-breath is starting. You know, we sometimes say that uh, what comes after 11 a.m. on Wednesday is the beginning of the second half of the retreat. And everything still applies in terms of the uh, principles of practice. And it's been such a, a privilege to, to be here. I think I speak for teachers and the uh, managers, the cooks, uh, all the staff. It's been a, a privilege to, um, to be with the processes of awakening that are occurring in all their ups and downs and sideways motions and mysterious movements and unknown insights and so forth. It's, it's a privilege. It really is. Um, it's a very deep honor. And uh, yeah, I think it's, I know it's, it, it touches me a lot, touches all of us a lot. You know, and as, um, as we come into a day in which for some of us, it's the second day of some talking together, for others, the first day, you know, probably for many of us, there might be this shocking recognition of old patterns. <laughs> and there might be also a sense of, hmm, it's not quite the same. <laughs> Some things have changed. You know, there's, there are this, uh, you know, there's a kind of a, a rebirth of our way of being in the world, being relationally, relationally that, that's occurring. You know, and there's something I'm sure new that's happening. Uh, I had a dream two nights ago of ending this very long inward period and walking down a hill into a green forest in the mountains. You know, like going from this inward space outward and just being surrounded by beauty. So it was a very sweet dream. You know, and, and it, it, um, 
is one way that we experience sometimes this this um, this movement. You know, there's everything's there. There's the all the cycles are there. There's the um, agitation. There's the peace. There's the oh my gosh, I'm losing it all. There's the return. There's the remembering. You know. And there's this very powerful way that we've all been on a journey, a very powerful journey, and a journey that continues. And I wanted to read one of my favorite poems. Uh, Probably many of you know this. It's it's actually called The Journey by Mary Oliver. And it's been an important poem for me. It has, if you listen carefully, you can hear in this uh, short poem the different segments, the different parts of the Buddha's journey that Larry gave us. You can listen to the calling, uh, departure, struggle, awakening and return. And I think it's, it's helpful just to come back and, and see all these different parts of the journey that we've been on. One day you finally knew what you had to do and began. Though the voices around you kept shouting their bad advice. Though the whole house began to tremble and you felt the old tug at your ankles. Mend my life, each voice cried. But you didn't stop. You knew what you had to do, though the wind pried with its stiff fingers at the very foundations, though their melancholy was terrible. It was already late enough and a wild night and the road full of fallen branches and stones. But little by little, as you left their voices behind, the stars began to burn through the sheets of clouds. And there was a new voice which you slowly recognized as your own that kept you company as you strode deeper and deeper into the world, determined to do the only thing you could do, determined to save the only life you could save. We can hear all of those parts of the journey. You finally knew what you had to do, that that call and a sense of calling. The beginning, you knew what you had to do and you began. And the, I think the, you know, the departure, which is in this poem, a kind of a departure eventually from the house. And there's this struggle. There's the, the voices around you kept shouting, their bad advice. That is the description of a retreat. <laughs> we are experts on our own bad advice, right? So I always think of um, uh, Gil Fronsdale, who teaches here. He once said that if someone was next to us and repeated what we tell ourselves, 
in the ways that we tell ourselves and with the repetition that we tell ourselves the same things, we would definitely think that person was the most obnoxious possible person on the planet. (laughs) Though the whole house began to tremble, you know, this, this, this struggle, sometimes we actually do tremble. We tremble in different ways. And somehow the movement occurs and we work with the voices and we work with the trembling and something else happens. There's an awakening in the poem. It's the new voice, the sense of really hearing our own awakened being. It's a voice we can trust, you know, knowing the voices in ourselves that we can trust and knowing which ones we don't trust so much or that are old and conditioned. And it's a huge part of what we've done. And just watching and listening to those over and over again. And as we do that, we somehow go out, as in the poem, out into the world and live our lives. This is a training period we've gone through And the purpose of training isn't to stay in training perpetually. It's really to, uh, it's really to train us so that we do, in a sense, what we're called to do. So that we can really um, follow our, our deeper vocation. There's a very beautiful vision that I think calls many of us. And that that is a way of understanding our practice as we move into the world. And it's the vision in which we connect our inner practice with our response in the world through whatever we do. It's a very, very beautiful vision, a powerful one, you know, that we find in so many cultures that it's his vision and Heather mentioned it, it says and, and really suggested that it may be the gift of our generation or our generations to bridge inner and outer, to bridge inner practice with responding to the needs of the world in all of the ways that we may do that. I believe that's true. It doesn't mean we do everything all at once. And there are these incredible cycles of um, more inner work, more outer work, more outer exploration. And I know that very well. I was, um, I was initially, you know, as a, in college and so forth, I was more, as I mentioned, I think in one talk, I was more of an activist. And I think towards the end of being in college, I discovered meditation and um, started getting really into it. Started doing retreats at IMS. And um, felt this deep inward pull that led me for a number of years to do a lot of retreats and a lot of study. And I remember some of my old activist friends thought I was really, um, what, um, being escapist or they couldn't even, they couldn't even uh, sometimes understand very well what I, what I was up to. And 
but I, I felt that call to do the inner work and yet the wish to respond outwardly never, has never left me, you know? And it's sometimes a hard vocation to bring those together. You know, over the years, it's sometimes been quite lonely, you know, to, to bridge those, you know, with a lot of challenging experiences. I'm sure many of you know this very well. But there's this powerful vision that I want to really explore for the rest of the talk of connecting our inner work with our being in the world through whatever vocation, whatever activity we, we follow. You know, it's something which we really, I think, find in so many traditions. You know, for me, uh, being interested in that connection of inner and outer, I find inspiration in virtually every tradition. I find it in indigenous traditions where the um, spirituality is actually never cut off from community and daily life. Yeah. And then in the world religions, we have monastic traditions where people go out and it's a different vocation. But I find that inspiration from indigenous traditions. And, and then, you know, in the world religions, we find the amazing figures of the Jewish prophets, you know, who have this deep spirituality and deep calling. And yet they're also advocates on behalf of the poor, of the oppressed and so forth. It's a deep, a deep, deep tradition, you know, which has also, of course, um, led directly in a way to Jesus and Christianity. I think you can interpret his work in that way. This is from, uh, from Andrew Harvey, who wrote a book on the life of Jesus. He said, the life and work of Jesus combines the deepest mystical absorption in the divine with the most absolute and selfless work for justice and compassion in the world. And we find that with, you know, of course, with Gandhi and Dr. King and Dorothy Day and so many figures. And in the Buddhist tradition, we have this very powerful and inspiring image and model of the Bodhisattva. I want to, I want to talk to you as bodhisattvas. Because <laughs> you know, I think we're all in our own ways bodhisattvas. And the Bodhisattva is a being who has this deep intention to awaken, but also helps others. Sattva means being, Bodhi means awakened, awakened one, like as in the, the root for Buddha. You know, and I think there's this powerful call of our times to be, for many of us, maybe most of us, to be bodhisattvas in our own ways and to really bring that sense of combining inner and outer into being. Really for the sake of the world, for the sake of what's needed. The bodhisattva works with a vow, the powerful vow In the Zen tradition it goes, living beings are infinite, I vow to free them. Delusions are inexhaustible, I vow to cut through them. Dharma gates are boundless, I vow to enter them. The Buddha way is unsurpassable, I vow to realize it. From the Theravada tradition, where we also have the tradition of the Bodhisattva, 
you know, in many, many ways. You know, the Buddha in, in his lives before being fully awakened was called the Bodhisattva, which is the Pali version of Bodhisattva. And it's also the notion of one who would help others and be committed to awakening at the same time is there. This is from this is from a text from the fifth century from the Theravada tradition. Crossed, I would help others cross. Freed, I would free others. Tamed, I would tame others. Calmed, I would calm others. Comforted, I would comfort others. Attained to Nibbana, I would lead others to Nibbana. Purified, I would purify others. Enlightened, I would enlighten others. O may I awaken to supreme perfect enlightenment and bring well-being and happiness to all beings. From Shantideva, who if you're interested in this, he wrote the definitive guide. (laughs) Seventh century, a guide to the Bodhisattva's way of life. May I be a guard for those who are protectorless, a guide for those who journey on the road. For those who wish to go across the water, may I be a boat, a raft, a bridge. May I be an isle for those who yearn for landfall and a lamp for those who long for light. For those who need a resting place, a bed, for all those who need a servant, may I be a slave. Like the great earth and the other elements, enduring as the sky itself endures, for the boundless multitude of living beings, may I be the ground and vessel of their lives. Thus for every single thing that lives in number, like the boundless reaches of the sky, may I be their sustenance and nourishment until they pass beyond the bounds of suffering. So it really is this um, deep, Um, intention or aspiration that we may have. We may not express it in that kind of language, but it may be, may my awakening be connected with the intention to help others. May they be inseparable. It's a challenging and deep and um, hard vow that we may make. So the, what, is the, what is the Bodhisattva, how does the Bodhisattva train? Pretty much like we've been training. Plus part two of the retreat. <laughs> Namely, there's some further trainings with your difficult people out in the world, with your families, with your work, or with your challenge to find the right work. Classically, the Bodhisattva trains in the paramis. All of the paramis that Sylvia mentioned, we train in generosity and virtue or ethics, wisdom and so forth, patience, determination, loving kindness, equanimity. We train in those. So what in particular, you know, might be helpful to say, as we contemplate 
entering the, our everyday lives and our everyday world. What further might I say about the, um, the bodhisattva that could be helpful? So I want to really address the rest of what I'm saying to the continuity that can be there between our retreat and what comes next. The continuity between our practice here and our practice outside of the retreat boundaries. So what really, what guides the bodhisattva? What really helps the bodhisattva to to be there in the world? First, I would say that the bodhisattva touches freedom. The bodhisattva knows freedom and brings freedom and the training for freedom into the engagement in the world. So we've trained here in touching freedom in various ways, in large ways, in small ways, just in the moment when there's awareness and I don't have to grasp because I see the same pattern happening again and I don't have to grasp. Or when I see the first arrow, I feel the first arrow and I don't shoot the second arrow. It's that freedom. The freedom to not be driven by compulsive patterns. And our training has been entirely in that direction. And it can be freedom, the freedom that may be there at times, the freedom of calm, the freedom of being present with phenomena without suffering, sometimes without the structure of self, in touch with impermanence, in touch with flow, and knowing that freedom, momentary at times, sometimes a little longer lasting. And somehow what we do is we find ways to stay in touch with that freedom in the world. To be able to have the mindfulness to notice when that repetitive pattern happens and we're about to do something and the mindfulness says that's happening again and we don't do it. That's the kind of freedom that we're looking for in part in our, in our action in the world. And to keep that vision of freedom, to bring and to keep that vision of freedom there for ourselves and for others. <coughs> really to have that sense of, what, of what's possible for human beings and to find ways of translating that into our, into our very being in the world. One thing that I have found to be the case is that we come to know that the core principles of practice are the same both for inner practice and for outer practice. Part of my own work has been, especially in the last 15 years or so, to work with uh, training programs for people connecting inner and outer work. 
through Buddhist Peace Fellowship, through, um, through a graduate program, through program at Spirit Rock called the, the Path of Engagement that um, several of you were in. I won't name them, but we have graduates here from that program. We have, they've taken Bodhisattva vows. And um, what I have found in all of that work is that all the principles that we're working with, mindfulness, the principles and practices, mindfulness and wisdom, and working with intentions and developing equanimity, developing metta, they all have a meaning both in terms of inner practice and they have meanings that we can develop in our relational lives, in our organizational lives, in our work in the world. You know, a simple way to you know, show that some is just to think of that teaching of the two arrows, you know, which, is, which is a powerful teaching. It's really, in a way, a, a short version of the Four Noble Truths. And if you think of that teaching basically says that we need to learn to be with what's difficult without our habitual reactivity. And to be able to respond rather than react. And we learn how to do that just with our own minds, our own bodies, our emotions. We could translate that principle very easily into our relational lives and into our social lives. That we could look for ways to, in a, uh, in a couple, in a family, in a, um, a group, an organization, we could do first and second arrow trainings. How do you, how do you work with difficulty? How, do, how does one work when there's a difficult um, emotion? How do you work collectively? What we have found in our trainings is the principle holds. We still have to learn how to not be quite so reactive and how to be able to respond when we have uh, the same things ha- that have been happening for the last month or two months, when those are happening in more complex contexts, those of relationships and those of organizations, those of being part of the larger world. Another way to show that is to think of someone like uh, Dr. King or think of Gandhi and the whole practice of nonviolence is about not shooting the second arrow. We have received pain. We have received oppression. We will not keep the cycles of pain going. We will learn to meet the first arrow as that manifests, for example, as pain or injustice or oppression. We will meet that with both firmness and with with love. And it's a challenge to do that in our relational lives, in our organizational lives, in our social lives. But that's what's being asked for. To really keep on making, to keep on uh, making that uh, extension. And to do it wherever we are. You know, people here have so many different vocations. We have, you know, lawyers and artists and unemployed people and about to be unemployed people, you know, <laughs> and we have uh, 
you know, therapists and psychologists and uh, retired people and so forth. And we each have a version of how to do this. This is from, let's see, this is from, I think, about the third century. It's about the bodhisattvas. And in all these worlds, there are bodhisattvas walking, sitting, engaged in all kinds of work, doing charitable deeds out of a great compassionate heart, writing various treatises whereby to benefit the world. So all these different kinds of work. So what else does the bodhisattva know and need to know? What do you need to know as you are about to re-enter the world and in a way have um, entered some of the forms through the, through the, through the talking? I always think of um, having visited uh, the Abbey of Gethsemane where, you know, where Thomas Merton was a monk because I, I used to live in Kentucky. I lived there for about four years. And I remember reading the uh, novice manual for the entering monks at the Abbey of Gethsemane. And one of the first lines was, do not think that you've left the world. You have brought the world with you. <laughs> you know? And we bring the world with, with us. We, you know, we'll go back and we'll find different aspects and so forth. Another uh, aspect of the Bodhisattva's life. What does the Bodhisattva know? What does the Bodhisattva do? The Bodhisattva has to be an expert. This is really related to what I was saying earlier. The Bodhisattva is an expert on suffering and on being balanced with suffering, being balanced with difficulty. The Bodhisattva has trained in the eight worldly winds and continues training. If you wanted to have one particular teaching for the next week or two, remember the eight worldly winds. It will be windy (laughs) at times. But we become, this is really what we study. And this is really equanimity practice, most basically. We keep studying how we get off. We have to have enormous patience for being with our own difficulties, our own ups and downs. We have to really be able to do that, to be comfortable with the uncomfortable, to be able to be with challenges. Many of us will, in a short while, maybe in the next week, encounter so-called difficult people. They may be your family members. <laughs> you, know, they, you may go back to that coworker in a few days. Take your difficult people as starting points for practice. It's really important. And it really, it's not easy, but it changes everything. There's a line in the Tibetan Lojong teachings where it says, turn all obstacles into the path of practice. Turn all obstacles into the path of practice. Embrace your difficult people. Shanti David, a guide to the Bodhisattva's way of life, says, just like a treasure appearing unasked for in my home, I should be happy to have a difficult person, for that difficult person assists me in my conduct of awakening. 
You might want to write that down on your hand. <laughs> so it's really, it's really like that. Uh, there's, a, there's a line in the, uh, one of the Buddha's uh, discourses. It's called the, uh, some of you know, it's this famous one called the simile of the saw, which I won't go into the saw part of it, which is a little extreme, but um, there is, there are, there's a place in that sutta where the um, Buddha says, A practitioner may know himself or herself as calm and wise and mindful. But until one is tested, one doesn't really know whether that's valid. When a practitioner has encountered disagreeable patterns of speech and action and still maintains mindfulness, calmness, and wisdom, then one knows that those qualities are developed. (laughs) So there's a tremendous value actually in being uh, tested and finding challenges and in in taking those on really. You know, a few years ago, I was very interested in difficult people (laughs) <laughs> in my life. Actually, I've been interested for a long time. Uh, but I was, um, I had the, the blazing insight that seems now like what's some, sometimes called a blazing insight into the totally obvious. But it's, <laughs> which I think is, isn't that Dharma practice? Yes, all of practice. Okay, that's, that goes for everything. Okay. Um, and I, I was looking into it and I came to the insight that what makes a difficult person difficult? We would like to think that they're objective features of the person. <laughs> that there can be, you know, communal agreement about who's difficult and who's not. But actually, from an experiential point of view, what characterizes a difficult person is that I have difficult experiences with that person. <laughs> In other words, I have frustration, anger, um, irritation, grief, sadness. This is actually a very, very key point for the next, for the second part of the retreat. (laughs) It is really, really key because you, you can see how that turns the tables. Usually we think problems are external, especially when they involve other people. You know, I mean, a lot of our internal problems, we think those are external also, <laughs> caused by other people, but that's another matter. But when we actually say this difficulty, most directly from experiential point of view, is about my difficult experience, it turns it into practice. And that's crucial. Turn all obstacles into the path of practice. So the bodhisattva knows balances. The bodhisattva knows cycles. We know how the different parts of our being balance. We know the cycles of inner and outer, of retreat and being in the world. We can be sensitive to where we're called. There's one of the balances that um, 
it's really important for me, I think, I think important for, for all of us, is a balance that we really find in the Brahma Vihara, which, which is actually um, a very beautiful and subtle teaching, when, particularly when we look to how the four uh, Brahma Vihara uh, relate to each other. You know, that we have metta and karuna and mudita and upekka. And what's really, really interesting for me, and I mentioned this a little bit in the um, evening when I was teaching equanimity, is that they actually really uh, balance each other. And for our lives in the world, they're a beautiful guiding balance for our practice. But it can be confusing, you know, and this can particularly be confusing out in the world. One way that I sometimes think of metta and um, karuna and mudita is that they really are practices where we're wishing. You know, we're wishing for our own and others' well-being, for being free of suffering, for uh, joy to continue or augment and so forth. And they're really kinds of wishing and, and they can manifest very directly when we are with others in the world. You know, we want to help, we want to, we wish well, we act in ways that are designed to help people. And then there's the equanimity practice which balances those. You know, and they almost uses a different language. Like in my, you know, in um, the way I think of my own equanimity, the phrases I use for equanimity practice, really in a way counter, in a, in a kind of dynamic way, what happens with the first three. So I say with metta, I wish for my own and others' well-being. And then the equanimity phrase I use is, no matter what I wish for, things are as they are. I think of it, I was thinking of it a little, a little bit like good cop, bad cop. <laughs> not, not the best metaphor, but um, it's something that you get, there's a, it's a tension. And in daily life, if, we not, if we're not aware of that tension, we can really, really get confused. We really have to have these working. You see, it's like, you know, it's like the, the first three are really wishing. They're trying to help bring about a certain state of affairs. And then when the last one, it says, things are as they are. No matter what you wish for, as I said the other evening, it's like, I wish for this, I wish for that. And then equanimity says, no matter what you wish for, kid, things are as they are. You know? And there's a little, can be a sternness to it. Right? And that balance is really, really important. You know, that, we can actually, um, that we can actually work with that. That we can um, work in the world to have things develop in certain ways, very much like our practice. You know, we, we aspire to have more calm or to have more insight, and then we let things be as they are. It's a really important way that, it's a really important balance that the Bodhisattva knows. And it's related to the way that the Bodhisattva, um, you know, knows the other balances, knows the, balances uh, to avoid the extremes. You know, it's really the, the middle way that we've talked about a number of times, that we avoid certain extreme views. We vo- avoid certain, um, we avoid being hooked on either of the, any of the extremes of the um, eight winds. We avoid being grasping on to pleasure and to gain and to a good reputation, and to uh, praise. You know, we, have to really, we really have to practice with that. 
And we, we really try to, in a, in a way, find, find that middle way. You know, one of the most powerful expressions of this, uh, and I want to really uh, go into this in a little bit of detail before, before finishing, one of the most powerful expressions of that sense of balance in terms of, I think it's terms of both our practice here and in terms of being in the world, is the balance of, in a way, acting as fully as possible and letting things be as they are. It's paradoxical. We act fully. You know, we try to bring about these changes or that changes, and yet we don't grasp onto the results. It's really something that's very true of our practice. We, we learn that balance of fullness of effort without grasping at what happens in our practice. It's a really crucial balance that we've been developing insight into for the month or for the last two months. And it's a really crucial one in daily life. You know, it's, it's expressed in a lot of different traditions in the Bhagavad Gita is expressed as action without attachment to the fruits of one's action. It was a core principle for Gandhi, actually. You know, in the Chinese uh, Taoist tradition, it's expressed as uh, non-action or wu-wei. It's a powerful one. It's something the Bodhisattva uh, does very fully. Uh, T.S. Eliot, the poet, said it, was, said it like this. He said, ours is in the trying. The rest is not our business. Ours is in the trying. The rest is not our business. And we learn that in practice. We learn how to do that. I really, I think, first learned that principle when I was, I was in a previous... Uh, Lifetime, I taught um, at universities for seven years. And I was, that's what brought me to Kentucky. I was at the University of Kentucky teaching. And this is where I first really deepened in developing the principle of action without attachment to the fruits of one's action. It developed particularly one fall evening, or one, actually one fall. I, I was a young teacher and I was teaching ethics class. It was the fall, and it was an evening class, and I found I had uh, a large percentage of the class were football players. Now, football players in the fall, in the evening, have gone through a particular schedule. And that schedule consists of some classes in the morning, a big meal, about four or five hours of practice, and a big meal. And then they came to my class. <laughs> <laughs> and it was also, what, um, and what they most wanted to do was what? To sleep, basically. And if they couldn't sleep, and, and the class, I should say, was, it was a weird thing with the university where they um, had a requirement. The requirements, which were like developed in the 60s or something, where one could e- either take a mathematics class 
or a philosophy class. <laughs> and this ensured the enrollment of the philosophy department for decades. <laughs> and so they were filling. They were. They were tired, sleepy, and they were only fulfilling a requirement. They weren't interested in the subject at all. Enter Donald and Ern. <laughs> An earnest young teacher, and at that time I actually didn't look older than them particularly, so I actually had to grow a beard at one point to try to look older. You know, so anyway, that's an, and so there I was, and they if they if they weren't going to sleep, what they most wanted to do was to um, basically crack jokes, um, mostly at my expense. <laughs> So there I was, no doubt doing metta practice. I wish for your learning. <laughs> may you develop. May you follow my curriculum plan. <laughs> may we have good discussions. Wasn't happening, and I was getting frustrated. And. Um, I didn't know what to do exactly, and then I remembered this teaching that I had read about. I think from particularly from the Gita, but it's in a lot of it's in a lot of traditions of um, simply acting in the way I felt was best and letting things be as they are. And so I did that, and I said, "I really am not sure what's happening, but I'm just going to come." And be as present as I can, and really be with what I'm doing fully. And I don't know what's happening. Does it sound familiar? <laughs> Not put too much attention into th- the results that I think should be there. Does that sound familiar? Really important in the next phase. And it, re- I, I was tremendously more relaxed. And I still had my plans. I still had my intentions. I still tried to get a sense of what would be best. But I brought it to the situation, then just let it be whatever it was. And I didn't worry so much about it. And I didn't think I knew what was happening. And you know, we finished. And then um, it was really interesting. I had um, later, uh, after we had handed in grades, which is always an important.、Um, Boundary. So one of the football players came up to me and said, "I learned more in your class than I had in any other class." And someone came a year later and said something very similar. But it was something about that principle which really、um, stayed with me, which really stayed with me. And it's it's a it's a really powerful one for our practice. It's a powerful one for being in the world. It's really about staying with your inner integrity. It's really about staying with the practice. The sense of awareness, and it, and you'll be challenged in all sorts of ways to maintain that. You know, people will judge you, people will blame you. There'll be friction, and how do you keep that that sense of balance? You know, when one develops that principle to a more and more mature level, 
there are certain qualities that, that emerge. You know, and I found this, um, I found this in working with people and working and doing also a lot of, um, a lot of interviews with people who were out there in the world who we could call spiritual, spiritual activists and they're interviewing them. You know, one of the aspects of, of that balance is that in a sense, there's no such thing as failure. We are simply involved in a learning process. That is really, really crucial for the next phase for everyone. Everything is learning. Everything is practice. There is no such thing as failure. One person who I've got to know is Dr. Ari Ratni from uh, Sri Lanka, who um, started over 50 years ago the Sarvodaya movement to bring Buddhist practice-inspired uh, community development to over 15,000 villages. They received the um, Alternative Nobel Peace Prize for their response to the tsunami, which was more detailed and a fuller response than the government. And he said this, when I do something with good intentions and I quote-unquote fail, I do not take it as a failure. It may be a failure to others, but to me it is not a failure because that failure may have taught me equanimity or detachment or renunciation. In learning to accept failure, in a sense, I succeed. Every action that I carry out carries an internal reason which is always beneficial to me. There's that sense of who is really failing. It's probably our ideas are failing, our plans are failing. But the larger process is we stay with whatever's happening. Michael Mead, who's a mythologist, he's once said, the soul loves failure. In other words, the deeper part of ourselves actually becomes okay with quote-unquote failure because something deeper is learned. We become aware of conditions. We develop the wisdom about conditions. We really, in our practice, develop more and more what Heather was talking about, which is the sense of the long haul, the sense of patience and a very, very long perspective that we just keep on practicing and we don't look for results so much this week or that week, but we more and more, this is really what the Bodhisattva does, makes a commitment to stay with the process. And we develop the internal qualities that let us stay increasingly with all the ups and downs, keeping that sense of practice, keeping that sense of practice going. Shabkar, Tibetan yogi, says... Let your life and your practice be the same. Let your life and your practice be the same. No matter what happens, we can stay, stay with that practice. I go down uh, after supper every day and I go down to a bench which our family got from my father when he died a few years ago which is right near the community hall. I go down there every supper and I talk with him. He gives me practice guidance. I'm not claiming I know what's going on 
but I get guidance that I wouldn't get otherwise. Most of the time he just says, keep on going. (laughs) Keep on going. Sometimes more specific guidance, but a lot of time that's what I get. I talk with him and he says, keep on going, keep on going. Keep the energy going. You know? So we go out into the world, we bring our practice there, and we increasingly are led by our sense of our own calling, our own vocation. You know, that inner voice which tells us how to act. And many of us have that sense of calling. And some of us are still looking for that calling in the world. Some of us know we're, what we bring, what we want to bring out into the world, what activities we do. And others of us are looking for that. And it, it takes this deep listening over the years to really invite that to be present. And it really is about listening to that inner voice, that inner voice continually. And we're beautifully trained to listen for our own inner calling. It's really about finding that which brings joy. The bodhisattva is joyful in his or her activities. You know, there's, let me see where this is. Dorothy Day. You will know your vocation by the joy that it brings you. You will know. You will know when it's right. There's a beautiful guidance from Howard Thurman, the great African-American mystic and activist who set up the first interracial church in San Francisco. And he was an activist and he was, I think he died about 1980, if I remember right. And towards the end of his life, um, a young man came to him and asked, I don't know what to do. What should I do? And you might think he said, well, we could use a lot of volunteers for this. We could use people for that. He didn't say that at all. He said this, don't ask yourself what the world needs. Ask yourself what makes you come alive and go do that because what the world needs is people who have come alive. So I want to just close with, I think, two expressions of this uh, beautiful, powerful impulse to be our own bodhisattvas, our own version of the bodhisattva to connect our inner lives and our outer expression and to have them be increasingly totally interpenetrating. So listen in this first quote for the inner and the outer. This is from a Japanese Zen teacher named Odo Sesho Roshi, who is uh, Gary Snyder's uh, Zen teacher in Japan. In Zen, there are only two things. You sit and you sweep the garden. It doesn't matter how big the garden is. That's Zen, so I'm not going to interpret it for you. (laughs) There are only two things. You sit and you sweep the garden. It doesn't matter how big the garden is. And then the last one is from, let me see where where this went.
the last one, I just want to close with another expression of the Bodhisattva energy from Walt Whitman. This is what you should do. Love the earth and the sun and the animals. Despise riches. Give alms to everyone who asks. Stand up for the stupid and crazy. Devote your income and labor to others. Hate tyrants. Argue not concerning God. Have patience and indulgence towards the people. Re-examine all you have been told in school or church or in any book. Dismiss what insults your very soul. (laughs) And your flesh shall become a great poem. And you and have the richest fluency, not only in the words, but in the silent lines of its lips and face, and between the lashes of your eyes, and in every motion and joint of your body. Love the earth and sun and animals, and your flesh shall become a great poem, and have the richest fluency not only in its words, but in the silent lines of its lips and face, and between the lashes of your eyes and in every motion and joint of your body. This is the invitation for our practice as it continues. Thank you for your kind attention. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.